Well, thanks again for taking the time to let us interview you. So I guess we'll just get started. Um, can you give us a brief history of your work and how you um, got involved specifically with your projects on killer whales? I started in uh, 1973. Uh, actually, I got a, invited to be the sound man on a film expedition in uh, uh, Johnson, uh, well, in uh, I was living in Victoria at the time in British Columbia, and the expedition was to go up to Johnson Strait um, off northeastern Vancouver Island in search of killer whales. And this was a time when they really weren't, um, you know, nobody had studied them in the wild. Nobody knew exactly where they were. Uh, there was one um, fellow uh, named uh, Paul Spong who the previous year or two had gone up to um, uh, John, to the area around Johnson Strait to Hanson Island and was um, basing himself there and had seen some killer whales and it looked like a promising area to try to go uh, go to. So we we launched a sailboat, uh, got into all sorts of uh, problems, uh, man overboard, put the boat on the rocks, got into huge storms. It was kind of an expedition that almost didn't uh, you know, it didn't get past a week or two. And, um, I remember being, um, washed up in, uh, False Creek in Vancouver. And after we'd had this fantastic send off in Victoria with newspaper stories and, you know, national, uh, magazine articles, we were really, uh, you know, just sort of quietly, um, dusting ourselves off and trying to get back into the boat and see if we could uh, have a you know reasonable exped expedition. We had a um, a sailboat that was um, uh, didn't have an engine, so that was kind of a an adventure right from the start. It was sort of the skipper's purest idea of mm -hmm. how to approach the whales, and actually, in some ways, you know, he, you know, maybe he was far sighted because now. You know, the last um, uh, decade or so, we've been thinking a lot about the noise um, around whales and how bothered they might be. So really, I didn't come to this, um, to killer whales, orcas, as a biologist, but as a filmmaker. But I quickly got really, really interested in what was, you know, what they, who, you know, who they were, their social behavior, um, we found we could identify them as individuals and within about two or three weeks of being of finding killer whales off uh, up in Johnson Strait near Robson Bight, we had a, um, uh, well, well uh, Mike Big, the um, pioneer of killer whale uh, research and mm -hmm. identification showed up in the area. And so, you know, we started all of us collaborating with him in terms of trading sightings and photographs and, and, uh, you know, his, his huge, you know, there were some of them, we, some whales we could identify easily by eye, but, um, his in innovation was showing that if you had a sharp photograph of the dorsal fin and, and the, the saddle patch, you could identify any of them. So, so it was really that, first summer and then um, wanting to come back and finding out 
if they were still there, the se- you know, the second year, and then uh, really getting hooked into um, uh, the science and, you know, how to uh, learn more about them and, you know, just wanting to spend all the time we could with them. And th- these were all northern community killer whales, the ones off northern Vancouver Island. And so it really, for me, it really, um, um, I, I came to study them um, from, you know, from a, a different sort of angle. And, and really there was nowhere you could, you could actually go to university and do, uh, and get um, a degree in whale research. That was re- really didn't come in until uh, later on in the 70s and 80s. Um, so um, anyway, so I spent about, well, I went up um, to Johnson Strait 10 summers in a row. Um, there was a huge issue about Robson Bight being used as a uh, uh, an area uh, as a log boom when uh, McMillan Bloedel Limited, the Canada's largest logging company at the time, wanted to cut down um, a lot of the Sitka River Valley, which was the last unlogged, untouched river valley on eastern Vancouver Island, and. Uh, a lot of us uh, got together and were really opposed to that and tried to stop the log boom, which was going to happen right where they, you know, the killer whales were doing rubbing and, and feeding and uh, feeding on salmon and resting and all of that. So I started writing articles and re- really my, uh, in a way, and, and then I started writing a book on killer whales. So that really, that was my, uh, my education. And, then I, you know, just as a, to give you a sort of brief scope of, um, I, I went away from killer whales. I started doing work on other whales, uh, writing popular articles and just learning as much as I could about, uh, uh, what sort of whale research was going on around the world. I kept an, a really strong interest in marine protected areas. Um, and the, the, the sort of idea that, if we were going to um, protect whales, we were going to have to save their habitat. And, you know, people were just really coming around to that idea back then because it was, you know, there was such a focus on save the whales from uh, the whalers. And so people were just thinking about just not having them killed. They weren't thinking about habitat or even thinking that they necessarily needed habitat. You know, we were, I think the view was that, whales were out there swimming around and uh you know what 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 does it mean to have their habitat well we realized there was habitat because these same whales were coming back to the same places and so we realized that uh, if if we were going to uh, have them in the future you know as a, if they were going to survive they were going to have to have uh, some protection um for the places where they were living um, so I, I came back, I went away and I did a lot of other things and, um, had a fellowship at Massachusetts Institute of Technology. I got involved in, uh, other, um, wildlife species, uh, in the rainforest and, uh, wrote a couple books in that area. And then I, in the late nineties, I got interested in, uh, renewing my, um, time with killer whales and you know we always knew that there were 
orcas on the other side of uh, uh, the North Pacific, but they'd never been studied. So, uh, you know, on the Russian side. And mm-hmm. I had a chance with a um, with a lot of work I was doing in Japan to get a Russian scientist invited there and to uh, hang out with him and to find out, to, you know, he was somebody that I'd started to correspond with and thought maybe I could work with. And the two of us, along with a, a Japanese researcher that I'd worked with before, um, put together a project um, to uh, study killer whales in Kamchatka um, on the uh, in the Russian Far East. And, and that started, there was a pilot project in 99, and last year we celebrated our uh, 20th year. Um, so that was, um, um, you know, that's been a real interesting way to continue my, my, um, passion for killer whales and learning as much as I can about them. And, and also, uh, uh, really helping, uh, uh, I mean, part of that, part of that goal, the goal of that project was that, uh, Japanese, um, Aquariums were going to start capturing killer whales. And, uh, you know, at that time we didn't know about China, but, you know, since then China has started having a huge interest in uh, capturing killer whales. And, uh, we, we wanted to have, um, good numbers. We wanted to find out the situation before they started getting captured as we had seen happen in, um, um, in Puget Sound and uh, all around Vancouver Island, and and so you know that that helped to get funding for that study. But we also wondered, you know, did they have resident type fish eating killer whales and marine mammal hunters, or you know, what was the situation like in Russia? Were they healthy? Were they uh, uh, or were they carrying heavy contaminant loads? All those questions and. The other thing was that there was nobody studying them. So we thought if we could get Russian students, young Russian students started, and, and this was, this was always going to be a, a, a purely Russian program. I'm the, really the only non-Russian, uh, involved in it. Um, the Japanese collaborator was involved for the first few years. Um, uh, but, but not after that. And, and that really, uh, um, you know, that's really worked out. So about 60 Russian students have now, um, over the last 20 years, gone through this program and lots of PhDs and MSCs through uh, Russian universities. And, uh, uh, you know, so that, that's, that's the sort of scope of my killer whale work. But it really metamorphosed into uh, marine, marine protected areas and wanting to... Uh, uh, protect whales, uh, you know, more globally, in fact, uh, and, and lots of, and other species of whales and dolphins as well. Oh, that's, that's really awesome. Um, I do, I, I really like that your work is, uh, very well encompassing of a lot of species and it looks like you've, you've worked in a lot of countries. Um, how do you think studying marine protected area or like, how do you do that for those who are not in science? Um, and then how do you determine what changes need to be made? Also, 
you know, once you've conducted those studies, do you find challenges with trying to implement changes or how do you go about doing that with different governments? Well, there's, you know, there are a number of stages with this. And, you know, the first thing I wanted to do, uh, for, well, the th thing that I realized in by about the late 1990s was that the um, there was this field of marine protected area uh, research and conservation, and but they weren't talking to the whale researchers, and the whale researchers weren't talking to them. So these were two completely different um, fields, and and in fact, the marine protected area people were more focused on benthic fauna, you know, protecting the the uh, you, you know what was on the, on the bottom. And, and really near shore and fairly small areas. So it was not lending itself to, uh, um, you know, to, to species like whales and dolphins that are, um, moving around over larger areas. So I wrote, um, initially I wrote a, a few articles that I wrote a book, um, that, uh, turned into a, a much larger uh, more definitive second edition. Um, but I spent the better part of a decade, um, pulling this information together and, and really tried to, um, look at all these areas around the world that had some, um, habitat protection for whales, most of them incidental protection. You know, the whales happened to be there. There were a few cases like, Scammon's Lagoon for gray whales and, uh, uh, well, Laguna Ojo de Liebre, that's Scammon's Lagoon and San Ignacio and, and, uh, you know, that they, uh, they were protected areas, um, around the gray whale breeding, uh, lagoons in Mexico. And, and, uh, there was the Hawaiian Islands humpback whale national marine sanctuary, uh, in Hawaii. Stellwagen Bank uh, came on board in the 1990s uh, as an area where hump, humpback whales and other whales were found. So there were, you know, it was starting, but it was um, it was very um, uh, tenuous, and it was, you know, of course, only covering a few species and 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 all very close to land. And also, these areas were largely um, political and not necessarily biocentric. So they weren't based exactly where the habitats were. They were, they, they might've started that way, but by the time they, um, um, you know, the government, um, and the stakeholders, uh, started considering what they wanted, what they were going to protect. Um, and they looked at, you know, what fishing concerns were and all the other stuff, the, uh, the areas got, whittled down in size and, and the shapes, you know, became more politically oriented than biocentric. So this was always in the back of my mind that even though we did have a few marine protected areas, um, that included whale habitat, and even though we were getting more of them, uh, year by year, they still weren't, um, uh, that great, you know, in terms of actual coverage right. of whales. So I, you know, uh, about, um, well, around after I finished the second edition of the, the book, the marine protected areas for whales, dolphins, and porpoises, I started, uh, actually, I think in the last 
chapter of that book, I mentioned that we re we really needed to identify what what the key habitats were. You know, we we couldn't just leave it to chance and to the way marine protected areas are designed. Um, you know, through a stakeholder process. Um, to uh, you know, we we had to um, try to put together the masses of data, much of it unpublished. You know, whale research is fairly recent, you know, compared to uh, birds and, uh, you know, other species, land species. And the, the information, the data is spread all over the place. Um, and, and it's uh, not necessarily all harmonious. You know, some of it's acoustic data, some of it's line transects. Some of it's sighting data, aerial. You know, it's, there's a lot of different um, kinds of data that need to be taken into account. So in 2013, I um, worked with, um, uh, I, I, I set up a um, task force through the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, to identify um, well, really to develop a new tool for, um, for identifying, um, uh, whale habitats, whale, actually it became whale, dolphin and all marine mammal habitats, um, because of the, uh, the structure of the, of the IUCN and the way, um, uh, different conventions deal with marine mammals all as a group. It made sense to include all marine mammals. So it's, it's 90 species of whales plus another 40 species that include the uh, seals, sea lions, uh, polar bear, um, sea otter, and, uh, and the sirenians, you know, dugong and manatee. Mm -hmm. So we, we set up this task force myself and, uh, well, we, we set it up out of a committee that we'd, that, um, We'd formed a few years earlier the International Committee on Marine Mammal Protected Areas, and we'd had several conferences and discussions about this task force idea. And so it came about in uh, 2013 at the International Marine Protected Areas Congress in Marseille, and we had a lot of experts there from around the world um, talking to us about what sort of criteria we we needed to develop for um setting up these areas and you know how we might go about it and and we really we talked a lot to uh bird life international because bird life had developed this fantastic tool called important bird and biodiversity areas and and had really um uh you know what we were wanting was a kind of tool that was similar for marine mammals. Um, that tool for birds, for example, in Europe, um, when Europe, when um, the European Union set up the uh, uh, the uh, Natura 2000 uh, program to identify special areas of cons conservation through the Habitats Directive, they took these uh, areas that have been identified and, and pretty much made all of them uh, instant marine protected areas. 
because the science had been very good on the on in terms of establishing uh, you know the the particular areas needed for um, bird protection. So if, if we had had that for marine mammals, we would have you know been miles ahead uh, even back then. So so yeah. So so what we decided to do was to take a uh, um, was to try and develop this tool. Uh, we needed we knew that we needed to raise a lot of money, and that this would have to be done region by region with experts in each region. So. Um, so we managed after a few years, myself and the co-chair of this task force, um, to raise a substantial amount of money. And we've now, between 2016 and the present, uh, and 2019 right now, we've um, identified, well, we've gone through five regions across the Southern Hemisphere. And we're um, now... Um, up to about 114 um, important marine mammal areas, or IMAs. We're using mm -hmm. the uh, abbreviation for that. So that that's, um, and we're already seeing traction in terms of those, some of those becoming marine protected areas, some being um, the International Whaling Commission has adopted them for um, looking at areas where whales might be hit by ships, so that they could mitigate uh, um, those issues. Um, the U.S. Navy um, recently looked at all the areas and have, um, agreed not to use um, low-frequency sonar in, in the areas that where large baleen whales are found. So, um, yeah, so this information is available to anybody. It's on a website, marinemammalhabitat.org. And this is, for us, this is the fundamental way of starting to um, to do a marine protected area if you're going to include whales. Now, the ones, the marine protected areas that already exist, in some cases, the IMA um, overlaps parts of the marine protected area but extends further. That has implications for the the marine protected area manager that they might want to expand their area. Or maybe it's, um, you know, a small area that's used for uh, breeding and maybe that should be a special zone within their marine protected area. So there's a, a, a complex scenario of, of changes that um, we see that will, you know, will, will hopefully be made and some are starting to be made to um, accommodate um, the science. Uh, the, the good thing about the science, this is all peer-reviewed uh, work, so it goes through it goes through an expert process with um, all all database um, um, criteria based on on uh, data uh, supporting it that then um, um, gets nominated by by an, a workshop, a week-long workshop, and then goes for peer review to. Uh, um, some of the um, world experts on uh, different species of marine mammals, and um, so so about actually about a quarter to a third of them get turned down. So okay. it, it gives you an idea of uh, how robust it is, and and so that you know that's a sort of roundabout way of answering your question of how you 
that's sort of how you should do a marine protected area if it's including um, uh, marine mammals. Um, the um, the kind of uh, you know the, you still of course you've got the the science on one on one hand, but then you still need to go through the um, the process with uh, stakeholders, which is the you know the public, the fishermen. Uh, boaters, everybody, and and government to uh, to get an area approved. But if you've got um, science, you know, really solid science behind you, that that's an added uh, bonus in terms of getting the kind of habitat protection you need. Awesome, that's definitely very informative. Um, I'm. Curious as to what marine protective areas that you've seen that have been successful versus unsuccessful and what typically determines that. I'm sure you probably have to look at each area on a case-by-case basis, but are there any specific um, things that would make it more or less successful? Yeah, th- no, that's, that's a good question. And there are, um, you know, one of the, one of the key things is, uh, I mean, first I should explain that the word marine protected area is just a generic term. And, and there may be like 250, 300 different terms that are in use around the world that mean the same, that mean the same thing as marine protected areas. So it, it doesn't, um, it can be different levels of protection. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's just a generic term. And, and people use the term MPA in short for, you know, as a short form. Um, so, um, I think the, um, well, one of the key things is how well protected it is. And if you've got a highly protected area, which usually, um, the dividing line tends to be, um, fishing, um, commercial fishing. If you've got no take, either a no take area or you've got a larger marine protected area with no take zones within it, then you have a much better chance of a successful area because I mean, even having no take zones within a larger area where there is some fishing, uh, we find that there's this huge spillover effect. Um, if you've protected the right areas with, uh, juvenile fish and, you know, key, uh, habitat, um, for fish, then you can, um, build um, and help protect that ecosystem. Um, the other things that are important are um, uh, longevity. You know, it takes time for these for the um, protection measures to uh, start to work. Um, you know, you can't put up a fence around an area, so you're really thinking about um, education. You know. A, telling people about it, letting um, boaters know about it and fishermen and everybody else, and uh, stakeholder involvement. So having the community, you know, if you think of a community by the sea, if they're involved in the creation of it and they want it and they see it as protecting habitat for some of the creatures that are around that they want to show people, you know, that all that that's really important. Um, so the successful, um, the successful ones are, um, for example, the, the, 
uh, Northwest Hawaiian Islands. The Mexican lagoons are a good example because they, um, and they've been tested. You know, Mitsubishi years ago wanted to build salt works in the, in the lagoons and they, um, uh, you know, community of local people who were involved with whale watching, um, you know, who wanted to, didn't want to ruin the situation with the gray whales as well as an international group really fought that. And, uh, the company finally capitulated. Um, if you, so, I mean, that, that's a, probably a reasonable example of an area wh- where you've got, um, a healthy population of whales and it continues. Um, other examples, um, the, uh, Papahanao Mokuakea Marine National Monument, which is the area that, um, um, Obama set aside off the Northwest Hawaiian islands is, is a, um, going to be a no fishing area. I think they've already, there were only, um, three boats left. I think they bought, bought out the fishing there. So it will be a, a massive area about the size of the Great Barrier Reef where, um, it's really just for the species that are there, which humpback whales and spinner dolphins and, um, and, uh, Hawaiian monk seals and, you know, extraordinary diversity of species. Um, the Commander Islands, State Biosphere Reserve in Russia, fantastic area where I've, I've spent time um, for uh, uh, orcas, humpback whales, Baird's beaked whales, um, you know, lo- lots of species, very healthy. Part of that works is because it's, it re- it's remote, um, but the uh, Russian government uh, drew a line 30 nautical miles all around these two islands, and there's no fishing allowed in those areas. So those are some of the best examples. I think the, the ones that aren't successful are more like areas that are just, have just been named and they haven't really done anything yet. It's still on paper. And and every every marine protected area, if you think about it, you know, when they're named by government, they start out on paper and it's what you, you know, what the community and what, uh, uh, enforcement and education make of it, you know? So, um, in a sense, the bad ones are the ones where they, they don't end up making anything of it, you know? So, uh, I, I think there are lots of examples of those because we're still, we're still on the steep learning curve with marine protected areas. You know, we only had the the first um, marine protected area for whales in 1972. And, uh, and we didn't really have very many until the 2000s. So it's, it's still uh, a work in progress, but it takes time to do it. And, and we're yeah. still, if you, look, if you look at the whole ocean, there's only um, less than, I think it's about up to close to 5% of the ocean uh, protected in some kind of uh, uh, marine protected area. And the goal is uh, 10% by 2020. And a lot of organizations, well, and and the International Union for Conservation of Nature are pushing 30% of the ocean by 2030. Amazing, yeah. But we've got a long way to go. And that's a tall order. Yes, absolutely. Definitely got... Uh, a lot of work. Um, 
That's awesome. So, you know, I, I like what you're saying that this is new and that we just kind of have to learn and be adaptive. Um, is there anything in particular that you think that we can learn from past things going forward? Well, yeah, yeah, just that we've, well, we've got to involve people when we do it because humans are the, have the biggest impact on the ecosystem. You know, everything from, well, absolutely everything. It's, it's humans. It's humans we need to manage, not whales. Yeah. And, and I, I think we need to remember that. And so if we don't have humans involved in buying into the whole process, um, you know, short of having a dictatorship where you, you know, where you execute people who do anything wrong, you know, you're not going to be able to um, protect the ocean without that buy-in. Um, so, so that's, I think that's probably the biggest thing we can learn. Right. Absolutely. Um, so I'm not sure how, fam I'm sure you're at least a little bit familiar with the Southern resident population based on your previous experience and what you know about them. Uh, what do you think our best, um, actions would be as far as management moving forward? Well, I think, I think we need, um, um, a full, suite of, of um, things to happen, <clears throat> you know, and I think the, the task, the, you know, the governor's task force was a great idea. And, and there were a lot of good ideas that came out of that. Um, you know, everything from dismantling the, the dams to um, backing off from some of the whale watching, um, you know, trying to just put less, less pressure on them. Um, but also cleaning up the habitat. You know, it's, it's going to be a tall order for a very enclosed sea like the, uh, um, like Puget Sound and the Salish Sea to, um, to clean it up, you know, and, and it, but I think it, it's got to be something that, uh, uh, everybody, um, takes a hand in, you know, all the local residents, everybody. Um, you know, I like, I like a lot of the stuff that's happening. You know, people are really focused on it. I was, um, in, uh, Seattle and, um, Friday Harbor and, uh, around the, uh, the Gulf Islands in September. And, uh, you know, I liked a lot of the stuff that I saw and, and I was fortunate, you know, the day I arrived in, uh, West Seattle two hours afterwards, um, J and K pod showed up and hadn't been there for, uh, for months. And that was, that was quite exciting. And then, and then even on Friday Harbor, the L pod, part of L pod showed up. So, um, it was, um, you know, it was, it was, um, kind of, you know, it was, it was, t t it was exciting that they were there, but you know, you also have this kind of nervousness, I think when you, then you, you're watching and you start to see uh, boats pulling out and, you know, going toward them, you know, and it's, you know, I'm, I'm very much a supporter of whale watching, but I, I do think when you get to an endangered species, um, you need to just, uh, back off and give them a lot more space than, um, well, a lot more space. Um, I think the, um, so yeah, so I think it's a, it's going to be, um, a group is going to be a community effort and it's going to have to, uh, have some big, um, 
actions as well as, uh, you know, millions of small actions to uh, create an environment where the Southern residents will uh, survive into the future. It's, you know, it's, they don't seem to be uh, returning to, uh, uh, to, to the kind of numbers that, that are healthy, but they still do have, um, you know, quite a few uh, females that are productive. So it's, you know, it's potentially still possible it's not, it's, it's not a dire, I'd say it's, it's getting close to a dire situation, but it's not, it's not end of the road. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it just sounds like we need to kind of start applying a lot of pressure pretty quickly because, you know, like you said, it's, it may not be dire just yet, but we're getting there. How much time do you think we have before it becomes a dire situation? Well, I, we I think you Sorry, yeah. if we continue the way we are now. Yeah, well, I, yeah, I think if you can, if if nothing changes, and a few more females die, productive females die, um, you you know we're going to be in trouble. You know that that's the thing. We're not that far away. We you know killer whales are are at the top of the food chain, and we have all these populations around the world that are numbering anywhere i mean some of them are are fewer than the southern residents you know some of the uh uh area like around uh, um gibraltar and the population that's that's around uh, peninsula valdez uh you know are, are even smaller populations as far as we know in terms of breed, breeding units is, is what i mean by populations mm-hmm. and 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 the thing is that if they lose uh, females, productive females, um, they're in trouble. You know, they're in really serious trouble, and and they're not, you know none of them are very far away from being in serious trouble. So I think that's that's what we have to keep in mind. Um, you know, and we have lost some um, females as well as uh, you know the case of uh, Taliqua, um, uh last year, the year before last you know, losing the, her second calf and carrying it around, you know, for a thousand kilometers or whatever it was, um, day after day, you know, I think that's, uh, that's, you know, that, that was a very telling sign. And I think probably woke up a lot of people, even outside of, um, outside of the U S and Canada, you know, we, it was, um, really went worldwide. Um, so people were starting to appreciate the plight of the Southern residents. Um, I, yeah, I think we need to listen. It's, you know, now, now's the time to listen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of talk of potentially putting in a Marine sanctuary. Uh, do you think that that would be an effective management tool? Well, it depends what you mean by a Marine sanctuary, because, um, you know, I mean, the, you could be talking about just a, a, an area where uh, uh, where no boats can go. That's kind of a limited area, or if you're talking about making the whole of um, Salish Sea, um, you know, a marine uh, conservation area or sa- sanctuary or protected area. Um, 
you know, that's a completely different story. And, and, and whether it's managed, you know, it's also, it's, it's how it's managed. Is it, is it a, um, managed for multiple use, you know, so that all these things can go on or is it managed in a zoned way where you have certain things going in one zone and not another? Um, so all the, all these things, um, you know, in other words, it needs to be qualified, you know, what, what is meant by that before you can judge whether it's an effective management tool or whether it would be effective. Um, it's, you know, it's possible. It's really hard to, uh, to prove it because we're talking about really long, uh, time periods to, to show something with, uh, with a long lived species like, or Sinosaurica, you know, so, um, but, you know, certainly in terms of a precautionary approach, it, it makes sense, but, you know, how much do you want to uh, stop fishing? How much do you want to stop traffic um, to uh, allow some of these things to happen? You know, it's, it's some dif- difficult decisions have to be made. Um, I, I would argue that some precautionary methods more than what is being used right now should be adopted. Um, but, but, you know, where, where you draw the line, how much you do, um, is, uh, is a difficult thing to decide. Absolutely. Um, I think kind of my final question for you is, you know, what have you learned from the orcas or other whales or in what ways? I mean, I don't know that the southern residents have directly impacted you, but how have orcas impacted you? Yeah, well, they've, they've actually set my my own path, you know, in many ways, because um, as I said in the beginning with the with Robson Bite and trying to uh, protect that area uh, with the group of us that were doing that in the in the early 1980s. Um, made me realize um, that habitat was was important. You know, it, the other thing I realized is that we didn't ask for anywhere near enough because, I mean, we got something like a postage stamp of protection in this really limited area. And, uh, you know, we really needed a lot more um, in terms of actually trying to protect the, um, the northern community. Um, I think the, um, you know, because we're, we're thinking about, uh, traffic and possibility of oil spills and all kinds of things happening, happening. And if you don't, um, uh, include that in your management, you're not going to have, uh, uh, good protection. So I think, I think orcas, um, they set me on the path in terms of protected areas, but they also, you know, there was a lot of caring, um, that we had about individual whales, you know, whales like Stubbs, who was one of the, is A1 in the catalog, the very first whale to be identified that we were quite fond of. Um, and I, so I think the idea of orca welfare, well, whale welfare really, um, came through, um, getting to know orcas as individual whales, having names for them and, and I think that's really carried through with lots of people um, these days. And, you know, from that, that caring about individual whales, 
you you want to ensure they have a healthy place to live, you know, and that gets you to orca habitat conservation. And then you want to share the joy. Yeah, then you want to share the joy, you know, and, and whale watching helps with that and films and books and social media.